0: Today I'm here with Carly Santarelli, the founder of Sister Inmate, an LA-based nonprofit dedicated to reducing the recidivism rate one loved one at a time. Well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you um, for having me. Super excited to learn more about the work you're doing and um, what Sister Inmate actually is, like what it com- what's it's what it's comprised of, and um, just to learn more about just incarceration in general and what people experience and what it's like to go work in prisons and all sorts of things. So yeah. if we can start with you talking about what sister inmate is, I'd yeah. love to hear your story. Yeah. So the term sister inmate
1: actually means, um, I am the sister of an inmate therefore I am incarcerated by affiliation not by choice so I didn't go and commit the crime but because I have a loved one incarcerated it also incarcerates me in so many ways and you know I can go more into detail about that but that's what that term really means most people when they hear sister inmate they're like what does that even mean you mm-hmm. know so it can be mother inmate brother inmate daughter inmate you know however you're, what kind of relationship you have with someone being incarcerated. So that's what that term means. But what we do is a few different things on the inside. So inside meaning in a jail setting and on the outside, meaning in everyday life in society. So it started off with um, me going into LA County jails to teach a life skills class. It's kind of like a self-help class that focuses um, on mind, physical body, and spirit. And I've done that for many years, and then once I realized that the services needed were much greater than what I was providing, I decided to bring on the family component and the community component, because when you have a loved one incarcerated, it really turns your life upside down in so many aspects, and so every single Monday night, um, we have a support group from 7 to 9 p.m. in South L.A., and we're there for emotional support. Um, if people need help finding work, we'll help them find work. If they need help with therapy, counseling, all different kinds of things. Well, if we don't have the resource, we'll go out into the community and we help them find the resource. So we do stuff on the inside and the outside. We also work with, um, at-risk teens occasionally because the sooner you can get to somebody, the better. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, I want to be in the jails because of a personal reason, but
0: can you touch more on that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I started sister inmate in the first place because I had a brother that was incarcerated. So when I was 12 years old, he committed a crime. Um, he killed his wife and he turned himself in and both of them were very young. Uh, she was 18, he was 19 years old and they had a little girl together And I was very involved in my brother's case. I would go to his hearings, his trials and speak when I was allowed to. And, um, you know, my family didn't have the financial resources to hire an attorney and, you know, pursue it that way. So we were given public defenders and we grew up in Virginia and he was in South Carolina. So there's a bit of a distance between the two states. And so I was always on the phone calling the public defender, like, why isn't this happening or why is this happening? And my brother's complaining. Why isn't he getting treated fairly and things like that. He went to jail right away. Yeah. So he actually, yeah, everybody goes to jail when they're first arrested Mm -hmm. and you're there. If, You can um, bail out. You Mm -hmm. can bail out if you can't because you don't have that option or you don't have the the financial resources. You stay in jail until you're sentenced. And then once you're sentenced, if it's um, more than 365 days, technically you're supposed to serve it in prison. But because prisons now are overcrowded, they have um, a different category of inmates who are serving smaller prison terms in county jails. So you can get somebody serving five to 10 years in county jail now. So yeah, he turned himself in. He went to jail. Did he He, come?
0: Sorry to interrupt. Did he come to you and your family first? No, because he was in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So he just went straight and turned himself in, and then you guys found out. Yeah, we found out. um, I remember that
1: day of like getting that news so vividly because it was a a weekend, and my family and I we were going to a water amusement park. And like, as we were walking out the door, we get the phone call and, you know, I'll never, you know, be able to take that sound out. Like when you hear a mom scream because she's been told that news, it's just devastating. So, yeah, we found out because um, his um, wife, they were separated at the time. Her mother called my mom. Well, yeah. So, you know, you go through that whole experience and it's many years because the court systems usually don't work, you know, quickly and things (laughs) like that. Um, so it's not a quick process and it just destroys your life in so many ways, um, and things like that. And for the longest time I was seeking justice, you know, and justice can mean something different to all of us. And at that time, I just like wanted my brother to be treated properly as a human being and things like that. And you hear of all these terrible things that happen in, in that setting in prison. And so I just was, you know, pointing my finger at everybody, like the judge, why isn't there justice here? The public defender, why aren't you doing the job that you're supposed to be doing? The prison, why aren't you taking care of these people? Like basic necessities, you know? And, and you were how old? 12? I was like 12. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually many years later, um, probably not until my uh, early twenties, I was like, okay, this way of like reaching out to other people to find justice, the kind of justice that I want is not working. And so I was like, you have to try something else. I mean, this like put me through major depressions in my life and things like that and made me isolate myself from my family and from my friends and it got bad and it got to the point where it was like, Carly, you either figure out how to use this to motivate you and turn your life around and to be an advocate for your brother and people who are incarcerated, or you can keep going down this path and it's not going to be, you know, a good path. And so, you know, I just decided, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take a break from the whole world for a little bit from that world and just focus on myself. And I did that for a while and so my brother was incarcerated for about 10 years, but about eight years ago, he was on suicide watch in the prison and he committed suicide. So that on top of the trauma, the experience of having a loved one incarcerated was just a lot to go through. Yeah. So I, at that point, I just focused on myself for a while, for a few years. And then I finally came to the point of, I was like, okay, I'm ready to get back into that game and figure out how I can create my own justice because 12 years later, or however many years after at that time, it was, I still wanted to do something. Mm -hmm. I still was looking for some kind of justice. And I realized when you hand that key over to somebody
0: else, you're usually going to be disappointed, unfortunately. Yeah. So you started teaching life skills after your brother passed
1: or? Yeah. Basically, I emailed the sheriff's department and I said, this is who I am. This is my story. I want to help, but I have no idea how, like at that time I had no idea how I could contribute to this issue and, and help people who were incarcerated. And they emailed me back. They said, we have this training, come to this orientation, and then we'll sit with you and figure out what you can do. So I went to it, and it was an all-day training where they basically taught you how to be a facilitator, how to be a teacher, how to develop lesson plans. They told you about the rules and the regulations of a jail in that setting, and they gave you scenarios of, you know, what people might do to try to set you up to get you to do illegal activity, and they... Um, you know, taught you different kind of tools that you can use in a classroom setting and stuff like that. So there was this one guy who works for the sheriff's department. His name is Richard Weintraub and he's a director with the department. He did a dream interpretation game with all of us that were there. And I walked out of that day thinking, holy crap, this guy knows more about me than I know about myself. And I was like, and there's no way that I can be a teacher. Like I was the kid in school that was shy, that Mm -hmm. like would never raise my hand to answer a question, was like terrified, was like trying to hide from, you know, the teacher and stuff like that. So I was like, I study fashion. Like that's what my whole life has always been about is the fashion industry. I'm like, what can I teach these people? And so I just kept showing up to every opportunity. They were like, we have this training, we have this talk, we have this, you know, volunteer project come Mm -hmm. here so i just kept showing up to everything and i pushed the idea of teaching to anybody away for a long time and i was like no go help the kids and i'll you know help hand out the christmas presents and do these things but the idea of facilitating life skill classes kept popping back up and it was like okay you either do this or you don't Mm -hmm. and so i was like let me try it i don't know what i have to lose and you know, maybe I can discover something amazing. And what was
0: the dream, uh, workshop or what, would, what did you call it? Dream interpretation. Dream interpretation. interpretation. Yeah. What did that consist of? And how, why did you feel like he knew more about you <laughs> than you did? It's the most amazing game I've ever played.
1: Um, he calls it the forest game. So basically he's taken, um, concepts from psychology and the spiritual world and have, um, developed a game around them and he has you close your eyes and he'll walk you through forest and you come across six different objects and each of those objects represent something different in life and depending on what they look like for you and what you do or don't do with the objects he gives you interpretations so the i'm not going to tell you what object represents what but i'll tell you overall what. conversations are so he talks about um our self-esteem and if we love ourselves like our mind our physical body and our spirit um he talks about school job career knowledge or wisdom Uh, another one of the objects represents our love for our family and friends um so you know are those healthy relationships for us are they you know bad relationships for us. Um, he also talks about, um, intimacy and sexuality and those relationships. He talks about, um, finding our purpose in life. Um, and the last uh, symbol is dealing with fears and problems in life and how we deal with them. So there's six major aspects to life that have a huge influence on us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you're not in the practice of Doing things to take care of your of yourself and like dealing with baggage and whatnot. When you sit down with him, this is the first thing he does with everybody because he also has his own practice of um, clients for therapy. Uh, there's a lot of things in the past that we have to take care of. You know, just because they happen in the past doesn't mean that they go away. They still mm-hmm. live within us. You know, in our in our mind, in our body, our mm-hmm. physical body, mm-hmm. and our spirit. So. We have to learn how to deal with that stuff to kind of, you know, make it go away. So it doesn't affect us in a
0: negative way. Yeah. So he's teaching this to inmates as well, or that's incredible. Yeah. He teaches it to inmates as well.
1: Um, and now I teach it to inmates as well. So he has become a dear friend of mine and he's on the board for sister inmate and stuff like that. So A lot that I teach has been a lot that I've learned from him. That's incredible. Yeah. He's a great person. So through this process,
0: how long have you been doing it? It's been five years going on six years almost. Mm -hmm. And you just recently launched Sister Inmate or you've been doing sister, uh, working on Sister Inmate for five years? No. Well, I mean, I guess I have been working on it, but I
1: didn't. It's so funny for the longest time. Everybody's like, what's the name of your program of your organization? Mm-hmm. You know, like, even when I go into the jails and when they announce to a module to a class of you know inmates like, oh, we have this new class teacher. They're like, what, what's the name of it? And I'm like. I don't know. I don't have a name. Like just say Miss Carly's here to teach life skills. Mm -hmm. And so it was like that for like the first three years, because I just couldn't figure out what the name of my organization was going to be. And I didn't want it to be something generic or there's a lot of organizations that have acronyms and stuff like that. Yeah. And I just wanted something that stood out. And I don't know. I just was at home, like working one day and I was like, sister inmate. And I was like, Oh my God, that's it. So I didn't officially form the nonprofit until I got my status recently as a 501 C three. So the last year I've been working on that. That's a lengthy process as well, Yeah. but I've been doing this for five, six years almost. So,
0: well, that's how I found you through inspired women of Los Angeles. Oh. Yeah. Cause you, I think, I don't know what you had posted, but I just clicked the link and was reading and super interested and, Part of morning matcha is just me personally learning about what's going on in the world and other people's experiences. And I'm really interested in just incarceration in general and um, learning more about it just because I've never thought about it. I always just thought, you know, people, if they do something bad, they go to jail. So I'm just not going to do anything bad. And that's kind of like the extent for so long. Obviously not as I've gotten older, but then as you get older... You have all these questions, but like government websites and, you know, it's just not the way that I want to learn my information. So I really want to talk to someone who's experienced it or had, ha- has had a loved one experience it and, and just what you've learned about um, the whole system in general. Because we talk a lot about how broken the system is, but that's kind of the extent of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you, like, what do you know about it and what's your perception of it? Well, I guess my perception is. I know that people aren't being treated properly, I know personally, I mean, but then it's amazing to hear about the programs that are happening. So that gives me hope. Um, But in general, I. I heard somewhere that there's a statistic that we're paying like $50,000 per prisoner per year Mm -hmm. to keep people incarcerated. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true. And just the fact that, you know, we're locking people up and treating them like, you know, they're nothing like they have absolutely no rights and you do one thing wrong or a series of wrong things, acts, And, um, yeah, you just, your life gets taken away. And then what do you have to live for? Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, honestly, when my brother committed his crime, that was the first time in my family that somebody's ever done something like that, you know, that extreme. And so I had that same mentality of like, I just never thought about it because I never had any personal experience with it. And I remember being a little girl waking up getting ready for school. My mom would always have the news on and, you know, you hear about like break-ins and robberies and car thefts and stuff like that. And it was like always in the background, but you think like, oh, that can never happen to me. And that's exactly what I thought. And then, you know, one day you get a phone call that completely changes your entire life. And so in a way I was forced to learn about a situation, you know, through personal experience and, um, the one, like, well, not the one thing, cause I've learned so much through all of this, but one of the most important things that I've learned now, like going into the jails and teaching is that I had the idea before that, oh, people commit crimes and they go to jail or prison, the keys thrown away and they're there forever. But that's not true. Like even people who commit horrible, horrible acts of crime, like things that you can't even imagine. Not all of them are in there for life. You know, maybe they get 20 years or 40 years, but majority of inmates are going to one day be released back into society. So for me, when I realized that, I was like, wait a second, hold on. I think I need to like educate myself about this topic and see, you know, how I can do something to help, you know, people who are coming home because- We want it to be safe in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our homes and stuff like that. So if if you're sending people to prison for 10 years, for 20 years, but you're not giving them any mental health services, you're not giving them educational services, you're not giving them life skills, you're not teaching them a trade, anything, they're going to come out worse than how they went in. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we want to do, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's kind of like the broken system that I have seen. And there's a lot of ways you can see that the system is broken because, you know, the recidivism rate is basically every three out of four inmates are going to reoffend if they don't get the help that they need. So I'm like, okay, if we're releasing people, whether it's a year from now or 20 years from now, and there's that statistic, That's the truth. That's not like me making something up. Then we need to do something. So they don't reoffend because then another innocent person or many people, an innocent family is going to be brought into a situation and their life is going to be turned upside down. And it's just, to me, that's my goal is to reduce the recidivism rate Mm -hmm. So crime doesn't continue to happen. And then the other thing that I learned is like, once I went in and started teaching these classes and hearing, you know, these stories that majority of, um, you know, my students tell me about, it's like, wow, you realize that they didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to go commit a crime. Like there was a series of traumatic events that have happened to them and their lifetime. And they didn't have the support from either their family or their community or the coping skills, the tools, the knowledge to survive those things and things in life. Don't just go away, Yeah. you know? So they learned to survive in the best way that they could. And they learned certain things, maybe from their surroundings, you know, depending on, you know, the kind of community that you live in and things like that. So I'm like, Oh, my goodness. These before I thought people who go to jail and prison are just bad, terrible people. But then you start to know them and hear their stories and you're like they're human beings. And that mom in jail or prison has kids probably. And now these kids are having to suffer because of what happened. So you see the bigger um, picture of how incarceration affects families affects communities and society as a whole. It's not just affecting the one person who committed the crime. Yeah. So those two things, I was like, I had a better understanding of why it's greatly needed, um, to, you know, to reform our justice system and to go in and teach life skills and provide all kinds of services.
0: Who, well, what types of, um, what countries and who's doing it right, basically? Like, have you studied where? Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare country
1: to country because countries are different sizes. But, you know, in like Sweden or Norway, I think they have a really good system there and things like that. But there are smaller countries. Yes, we can look at them and say, okay, what are they doing that's different than what we're doing? And how can we implement that into our system? For sure, there's definitely, you know, things that we need to study and learn from other people. Um, But our society, our culture is so different at the same time too. Yeah. And for us, for the United States to have like a big change in the way we um, deal with people who commit crimes, we need society to support those. Whether they're laws and programs, things like that, we need the support from society as society as well as the support from the justice system, the sheriff's department, the LAPD, you know, the um, public defender's office, all of those um, branches and things like that, because society is going to hold all of those people accountable, you know, to their practices and how they deal with it and stuff like that. So if society is saying to them we want to change the way we deal with this, you know, then they're going to start to listen. But, um, it's a lot of support from a lot of different people that we need, you know, but most people like myself, I never paid attention to this issue because it, I thought it didn't affect me. But even if you don't personally know somebody incarcerated, it does affect you. And what percentage of prisons are privatized? I don't know what the exact percentage is, Um and I don't work in the prisons. I'm Mm -hmm. just in the jails right now. I mean I
0: would love to And will you touch on the difference between jail and prison and the different levels and tiers of Yeah. Yeah. So jail is
1: like I said, when everybody gets arrested doesn't depend on the crime or anything. Everybody goes to jail first and you're held there if you can't bail out um until you're tried and then you you know, you're either found not guilty or you're sentenced. Mm And technically you're supposed to only spend 365 days in a jail, but because prisons are overcrowded, they created another category of inmates who are serving smaller prison sentences, but they're serving it in county jail. so that's the difference, but there's a lot of difference in the way that they function on a day to day basis and the way that they run and things like that, because, um, you know, they're different facilities for different reasons.
0: Okay. And then just like, what if someone committed a white collar crime or where, like, where do these people go? Are they all put in the same place after, if they go to prison? Hmm. Um, I mean, it just depends on, you know, where
1: you commit your crime state to state, it varies and stuff like that. So I don't know all the laws yeah. and rules for all the states and stuff like that, but, um, like California. Yeah, well, it depends. It depends on like where space is available. There's always it's not like one criteria of, okay, you go here. It's just so many components of where space is available and things like that. You know, I wish that they could take into consideration, Okay, this person, even though they got arrested in this county, maybe they're from another county and their family's there. So let's try to find a facility that's close to their family to make it easier on them and things like that. But they don't do that it's, it's hard to do that because again, um, there's, there's, there's not space everywhere. So it's basically, you know, a lot of people are like, find a space and then put them there. And then it also depends on, you know, jails and prisons are segregated. There's a lot of racism in jails and prisons. So they, you know, try to keep everybody separate depending on their race. So there's no way. Yeah. So there's not like, riots and and stuff like that. And if you're in a gang, they don't want to put you somewhere where there's a an affiliation where you can you know have gang activity going on. So there's so many different. so it's segregated based on lots of different things, not just race, but a, f- a bunch of different things. yes, but even if you go into a facility and um, you know, you see a bunch of different races, eventually the inmates are going to segregate themselves as well too. And how do you feel about that? It's sad. You know, it's sad to see that's something that is heavily built into um, that system. And, you know, I'm for equality for all races and I love diversity. And I think we each have different, Um, Unique, beautiful things to us, and we should celebrate that and not say that I'm better than you because of my skin color or my religion or my, you know, whatever reason. And so it's tough. But the good thing that with what I do is basically when I go into the jails, it's kind of like an educational dorm. So anybody who wants to participate in those classes, they have to be on good behavior to get into that dorm. And there are certain qualifications that they have to meet depending on the services that we provide. So once they get in there, they know that we don't tolerate that. And so they have to learn how to, you know, deal with whatever issues that they may have against another race or a person for whatever reason. And you see those barriers break down and you see them like the light bulb bulb goes off and they're like, wow, like this person that I grew up hating because of their skin color is like taught me so much and has made me laugh and like has helped me when I had a really hard day and things like that. So that is the good thing about what I do as well into, as teaching them, you know, life skills and helping them navigate through life is that it helps, you know, make those jail and prison settings, um, less violent and more loving and safer for the inmates, but also for the deputies and the security guards and stuff like that. Do you, Have you had ex- like scary experiences at all? No, <laughs> um, no, never. I mean, I've seen fights happen right before me and it's not scary. It's sad, you know, because I can't, I mean, I can't jump in and do anything legally. I'm not allowed to, but also what kind like, of fights like what, You know, people, a lot of it is, um, being disrespected. You know, if you say something nasty to me, you know, it's going to trigger me and I'm going to go off or, you know, usually there's a
0: lot of trick, like a lot of people triggering each other in the dorm that
1: I'm in. That doesn't happen Mm -hmm. a lot, but it has happened before, but it's a very rare event, but in general population, yes, you see fights all the time. Um, but I'm not in general population. I'm in a special dorm. So, um, but I, i never, I don't feel threatened or, you know, scared or anything like that. It just really breaks my heart because one, they lock the whole module down and all the other students that are there who are on really good behavior because they're hungry to learn and they want to like, you know, piece together pieces of their life and fix certain areas of their life and, you know, be a, a great person. They have to go and lock it down because two people decided to, you know, get into a confrontation and to fight over, you know, maybe I said something nasty to you or mean to you, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's what we teach them is like, people are always going to say and do whatever they want, whether you're in jail or not. And so you have to learn to ignore those things, you know, and sometimes you do have to stand up for yourself in assertive way, but you don't fight back. But, um, no, I mean, I, I do this all right now, volunteer base. You know, I don't get paid to do this, not even through sister inmate or anything like that. So when I go in, I always tell them my story about my brother and why I'm there because I think that's important for them to know what my intention is. You know, there are people that do get paid um, to go in and do these things and they're great teachers, you know, but they don't have maybe necessarily the experience that I have So when I go in, I always share my story, because if I'm going to ask you to open up to me, like Mm -hmm. I need to open up to you as well. And that, you know, when they hear my story and they realize like I'm there, I could be doing something with my friends or somewhere else doing a million other things. They are really grateful for that. So I've never been in a situation where anybody has wanted to hurt me or anything. And if one person got into the classroom that was out to get me for whatever reason, like I feel like I would be protected by all the other students, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's weird to say, but I feel at home when I'm there. Oh, Yeah. So did your brother have access to programs like that? No, not really, but also my brother. So when he was first sent to prison, um, the first five years he was in, he was in general population for the most part, but then it's really hard to be in general population because there's a lot of what
0: is that like? And what does that mean? Exactly.
1: Yeah. It's just basically general population where majority of people go. And then if you get into a fight or do something that you're not supposed to do, they'll sometimes put you in the shoe, which is like a punishment. It's like, you know, a small isolation or yeah. Um, And things like that. So my brother kind of, you know, there's (laughs) jail and prison is, is the way that the inmates in general population function on a day-to-day basis is, 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 it's crazy. You know, you have to adapt to survive in that situation. And so, you know, I'm sure my brother probably started fights and he probably was trying to defend himself sometimes too. So he constantly was kind of going in and out of um, isolation, the shoe and general population the first five years, but um, in his mid twenties, about his five-year mark of being incarcerated, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and some other personality disorders. So then they moved him from the general population facility to um, basically like the psychiatric prison. And from that point on, the next five years, his health just declined. And he eventually became the number one inmate to be seen by all the psychiatrists and the doctors and things like that. So when you're mentally ill there's like in the facility that my brother was in, there's not a lot of programs and stuff like that. I mean, he did have interaction with psychologists and his counselor and things like that, you know, from time to time. But um, I don't teach mentally ill inmates. I know in the jails here in LA counties, they do provide a little bit of programming for them, but that that's outside of what I know how to do. That's a very specific skill set and stuff. Are
0: you familiar with that though? Are you familiar with the types of programs that they have for mentally ill?
1: I know that they, I don't know if they're still doing it, but I know at one point they did try to bring in like an art based curriculum to help them and things like that and life skills and things like that. So um, I don't know if they're still doing them or how it worked for them. Um, because most of the mentally ill inmates for LA County jails are down in Twin Towers, which is in downtown LA. So I'm not in that facility right now. I'm in um, CRDF, which is in Linwood. It's the women's jail, mm-hmm. but yeah, I am. Um, I would love to one day, you know, learn how to work with that um, kind of clientele
0: and provide services, but yeah, I haven't done it yet. Well, yeah, that's amazing. What do you, um, like wish that the, they offered more of? Everything? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, you know, I will
1: say that um, CRDF, the facility in Lindwood that I'm at, has really done a great job these last few years um, implementing programs. I think about 80% of the women in that whole facility, and there's about 2,100 women in there, I think 80% of them have some kind of programming, which is great because that particular facility wasn't always like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a captain that's really supportive. There's um, lieutenants and sergeants and deputies that are really supportive of education-based incarceration in general. So when you have that support from within the department it makes it easier for people like myself and organizations like Sister Inmate to come in and provide services. But um, they're really good about the educational services. There's a lot of people who don't even have GEDs or high school diplomas, so they help them get their GED. Um, They do have religious services. Um, They have um, a few trade classes and stuff like that um and they even have like yoga they let yeah. people come in and teach yoga and meditation the organization that i'm partnered with right now health right 360 they're really good about bringing in spiritual based programs and i think probably that's what they need more of in addition to everything that they have. The other thing that I wish that they would do is I wish that they would feed them healthy food. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would be a big change (laughs) that I would do because the, whatever we put into our, our body, whether it's thoughts into our mind or food into our body That has a huge impact on our health. So I wish they would give them less carbs
0: and like more greens and vegetables and fruits and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So are you familiar with the difference between the like the prison or the jails that you're in and just out of state, like the conditions and the difference between privatized and not? Well,
1: I've never actually been into a prison except for to Mm -hmm. visit my brother. Um, and I've never, so I wouldn't have gone into a privatized prison cause I haven't been in that. Can an organization like yours go in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, um, you know, my organization is very small. And so I decided, let me just start local. So mm-hmm. I'm not driving two yeah. hours out of town, you know, or hour out of town to go to a facility. And actually there are federal prisons in downtown LA. There's the Metropolitan Detention Center. And, um, I did have a meeting with them and it was great. The guy that I was speaking to was, you know, super excited about everything and then nothing happened. So it's one of those things where you just have to keep being persistent, um, because I do want to get into that facility and things like that. But, you know, when you're a small organization, it's like, there's only 24 hours in a day and so much to do. So one day I will you know, go into, um, a prison and provide programming and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it just LA County jails are the first place that I got started and it's local and, you know, these people aren't going to be in there for long so that, you know, some of them will go to prison, but not all of them are going to go to prison. So I'm like, well, if we have people close to me that are getting out soon, like we need to provide them services. So when they do go home, they're, you know they're great citizens and great moms and dads and, you know, friends to people and stuff like that. Community members. Yeah. That
0: makes sense. Yeah. What about the people? I mean, you'd think that the people that aren't on their best behavior are the ones that might even need it the most and they don't have access to these programs.
1: Yeah. It's very, are
0: there certain programs that they do have access to
1: at all? Well, yes, because there are some programs that are correspondence based only. So there's a program called GOGI, which um, they're based out of Los Angeles, stands for getting out by going in, meaning internally. And so you don't really have to be in jail or prison to like learn positive things from their curriculum. But they have put together um, a 12 tool curriculum that teaches them how to make positive decision making Um, choices in life. And so they are in the prisons and they were in LA County jail, but you can sign up. I think it's like a, I think it's like $25 for the book. But if you want the certificate program, I think it's about $50 for that, where basically they send you a workbook and you go through and you do all the work and you submit your work to them. And they, you know, keep track of it to make sure you complete everything and give you feedback. And then at the end of that, they get like a certificate of completion and stuff like that. So yeah, if you have somebody who, you know, can, you know, pay your fee for that, then if there's no program in the actual facility, you can, you can find
0: some organizations that do correspondence work. What about jobs? Like what, what happens? You just, you get in trouble, you go in and what do you have an opportunity to work? once you're inside. Um,
1: so paid work or cause yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, there are opportunities for them to work. It's not paid. They call them trustees and basically they, um, you know, help with the little things around the module and stuff like that. Um, they take the trash out. Sometimes they have them uh, you know, like mop the floors and stuff like that. But in terms of paid work, I'm trying to think if there's any in the facility that I'm in at the moment, I can't think of any off the top my head. I know our module doesn't have any, um, paid work for them at the moment, but there
0: might be some other modules that do, but I don't know of them off the top of my head. Yeah. So if someone goes to jail and they're the main provider of their family, yeah. The state doesn't help. No, you have that. that,
1: you know, whoever's left to take care of the family that's still on the outside. That's the, That now becomes their financial responsibility. And yes, dep- depending on your income and stuff, there's certain things that people can apply for to get governmental assistance and things like that. But it doesn't cover, you know, what has been taken away, really, you know, mm-hmm. to help them a little bit. but yeah, you have the financial burden you have, you know, if you're trying to raise kids, you know, and your dad's taken away. Now you have to be the mom and the dad and the shame that goes along with it. Yeah. There's a, a lot of stigma around, you know, having, um, a loved one incarcerated. And for the longest time, like I was embarrassed, you know, it kind of saved me that my brother committed a crime so far away because nobody would have known about it unless I told them, And, but I remember when we would go to South Carolina for his trials and stuff like that, for some reason, the media was always there. And Mm -hmm. I remember his sentencing, um, they announced the sentence and it was two life sentences in prison with no parole. And I just remember thinking, I was like, that is the strangest thing I've ever heard. How can somebody serve two life sentences? I'm like, he's one human being. This does not make sense to (laughs) me. But I knew it was bad because everybody on our side of the courtroom just like dropped to their knees and started crying and like screaming. And then everybody on the other side of the courtroom was like cheering and hugging and happy and crying, but happy tears. And I was just like, I don't know what's going on, but I know whatever happened is not good. And my mom looked at my aunt and pointed to me and said, get her out of here now. And she just like took me and, you know took me out of the courtroom and as soon as we came out of the courtroom like all these reporters just bombarded me and they were like do you think your brother's a monster and I was like he's (laughs) a human being he's not a monster what are you talking about like I was just completely confused how old were you I
0: was like around
1: 12 or 13 I don't know that happened pretty quickly the sentencing I was probably at 13 yeah Wow. Yeah. So I just was like, I don't know what's going on. This is confusing, but these people are crazy. (laughs) What does that even mean, two life sentences? So for my brother's crime, he shot at his wife and he killed her. And then he also shot at her boyfriend and um, shot him in the finger. So they charged him with a life sentence for shooting at her boyfriend, even though he didn't kill him. Wow. Yeah. And it was two, uh, two life sentence, life sentences plus, uh, uh, more years, but that was for like leaving the scene of a crime and having a firearm on him and then kidnapping, because if you're holding somebody against their will and you kill them, that's kidnapping. So there's the legal system is very complex and complicated. It's like a lot of people get charged with murder, not because they pulled the trigger, but because they were a part of the crime, you know, and, and, um, it's it's sad when you have to learn that because you're now looking at 20 years in prison or something like that. But, you know, I have these conversations with my niece and nephew because as a teenager and a kid, like you think, oh, nothing's going to happen to me. And and I'm like, yeah, you realize that you don't have to pull the trigger. Like if you're in the car with them, they're going to think you're associated with the whole plan. Maybe you knew nothing about it, but, mm-hmm. and now look at you, you could be sitting in jail. So It's scary to think like how, you know, how
0: easily it can,
1: how easily it can happen and how, you know, once it happens, it just is taken to a whole extreme level. You're like, wait a minute, hold on. You know, a lot of things don't make sense. The legal system is really complex and complicated.
0: Wow. Yeah. Do you have anything that you recommend for other people who have loved ones in jail or in prison?
1: Yeah. I mean, find a local support group because to have that room to go to, whether it's a weekly basis or a monthly thing that they do, you know, to just have a moment to say like, I had a really hard week because this happened or this happened with my loved one. It's just like, to have that support is so valuable, you know, maybe they won't be able to financially help you or legally help you or anything like that, but it's really important to have that emotional support, whether that's from a church or from family or friends or a support group. And it may seem like there's not a lot of organizations out there and there weren't when I was 12 and, you know, I grew up in a really small town but now, like, especially in Los Angeles, there's a lot of support out there. I mean, we need more, but there are a lot of resources. You just kind of have to dig around to find them. But if you can find that place where you're not judged, you're not stigmatized and you're truly loved um, and you can just vent and get that love back and maybe some advice, um, it's, it helps a lot.
0: Yeah. yeah. What's your hope? for a sister inmate, like, what do you, where do you see it going? Oh my
1: goodness. It's crazy. Cause five years ago, six years ago, it was like a blank slate and like my mind was just spinning and I had no idea, but now I'm like, Oh my gosh! I want to turn the jails into the best school. I want them to come out, and I want people to meet them and be like, "Oh my god!" I want to graduate from jail too, yeah. <laughs> from sister inmates class. Yeah. Um, so that's a goal of mine. I also want to provide transitional housing because um, when you're caught up in the system, going in and out of jail or prison, whatever it is, and a lot of them are you get institutionalized and the way that you have to function in a jail or a prison is completely different than how you have to function in society. And even if somebody has a home to go to, that's not always an easy transition. So if you can provide kind of like a bridge for that process, it makes it easier on the family and it makes it easier on the person coming home. But a lot of people don't have the support, you know, And healthy and safe homes to go back to. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one of the greatest challenges that I always face is that we have people that come to our support group, whether they have a loved one incarcerated or they've been incarcerated and they're coming for support. And so many of them need housing. And I'm like calling the shelters, calling the transitional homes, and everybody has a waiting list. It's like you can't get in right away. So I, I want to one day have my own transitional house so I can like have a bed always available for somebody, you know, just like have a short term, you know, you can stay here for a week and then we'll find you something Mm -hmm. else because it's so heartbreaking to, um, to see people come and know that when that meeting's over, they're just going to go sleep on the streets. Like for me, that's really hard to deal with, you know, and I, I don't have all the money in the world to be like, here's a hotel, go here and stay here, you Mm -hmm. know? So, um, and you see people come and do it and they have kids, you know? So it's, it's, it's heartbreaking when I know in that moment, right then and there, I can't, you know, provide them a safe place
0: to sleep for the night. You'd think that it would just be part of the transition process when they let them go, but. Um, I would like it to be, um, but
1: for some legal reasons, you know, they can't necessarily say, okay, you know, you've been sentenced 1 year and then we're going to make you do this. Now if they add it to the sentence, then it it would work, but um you know, a lot of inmates if they do have friends that they can go live with or family that they can live with, we always encourage them to go into a a program or a transitional home and A lot of them are resistant to it because they want to get back to their family, which is understandable, but we're like, trust us, it'll make that transition a lot smoother and you can continue learning because most um, homes have like programming and classes and stuff like that. So not all of them do, but yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes they do, you know, when people are getting out of prison, uh, 25 years, sometimes they do have to go to transitional housing and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, transitional house I would love to provide and, you know, I only teach right now in the jails one day a week, two classes. Mm. I would love to do this, you know, full-time more and stuff like that. So just growing little by little so I can do more and more and more. Is it just you right now or do you have a team? Um, I do have a team. They're all volunteers and amazing human beings, but Richard is on my team. Um, Elaine, who is here today with me is on my team. She handles our social media and PR and things like that. Um, there is Wilbert Swaringer. He hosts our weekly support group. I mean, I always attend and usually Richard's there, but he kind of hosts it. Um, and then, um, sometimes I bring him into the jails to teach Mm -hmm. with me as well. Sometimes Richard comes into the jails to teach with me. Um, and then I have a, um, an amazing cinematographer photographer who has shot a lot of my stuff that I've been putting on Instagram and um, great females, like amazing females helping me. I feel like there's a lot of women involved in this and that's kind of how it is. Like when you have a loved one incarcerated, if you go to the jails, you'll mainly see moms and wives and daughters and sisters waiting in line to see their loved ones. When you go you know, in the visiting rooms and stuff like that, it's, it's a lot of females. And, stuff.
0: and the jails are co-ed?
1: No. No, no, no. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Twin
1: Towers houses some males and females because it's basically like the psychi- psychiatric facility. Um, so if there are females who need mental services, but they're not in the same module. I mean, there's Men's Central in downtown L.A. where it's strictly men. And then CRDF in Linwood, that's strictly women.
0: Oh, but in the module that you're in, it's strictly women and you still just see mainly women and their kids or women and their sisters and yeah. coming to visit. I yeah. See. Even for the visits. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think women are like superheroes and I'm not just saying that because no, I'm a female and I haven't even had kids or anything like that. But and I like males like are great as well and they have their characteristics that are amazing about them. But yeah, it's like when, when things happen, it's always like the women are there to like pick, pick up the pieces and to hold the family together and to keep them going. And the strength that you see in them is just so beautiful and so amazing and inspiring for me because I know the moment I you know bring kids into my life it's gonna add a whole nother layer of craziness. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I'm like, I hope I'm like them. You definitely are. Yeah. I don't know. No, you're so incredible. And I just really (laughs) want to say thank you for all the work that you do and and for sharing and keep doing it. Yeah, no,
1: and thank you for You know, just being you as like a human being and saying, like, I don't know anything about this world and I'm not going to just rely on, you know, certain government agencies or news media to teach me like I'm going to go out and educate myself and learn about this from different sources. Because no matter what the topic is, if it's mass incarceration, um, criminal justice, whatever, health, you know, terrorism we can't just rely on one person or one source to educate us. There's so many perspectives that are involved in a problem, in a situation that we have to like truly educate ourselves on the full circle, not just the one slice of the pie. And so thank you for doing that and um, bringing me here today to to maybe give you something new that you didn't know before. Yeah, thank you. It was fun.